This is Coda Radio, episode 295 for February 5th, 2018. Yes, and welcome into the mighty Coder Radio. I don't believe you. This episode is going to be a good one. I'm already fired up. It's our weekly talk show about pragmatic things around development and maybe the business, maybe the software. And yes, always, it's related technologies. This week is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this show goes on. My name is Chris, and our, our, I mean our host this week... Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Mike. <laughs> Bonjour, Monsieur Chris. I'm very excited about today. Very I excited. know you are. <laughs> You're practically giddy, one might say. I, I know, I know. You know, it's one of those weeks where the stars align. Uh, some, oh, yes. It was, some people call it Super Bowl weekend. For me, it's Coda Radio weekend. I've been, ready, I've been mm. preparing my body all weekend. I observed a blue moon, a super blue moon at that, to bring myself in alignment with the stars to prepare ourselves for today. I don't know what any of that means, but it sounded good. Are you in Florida today? Are you, I, I had a sense that you were traveling recently. I was. I was. Listen, I was gone and back again, man. I am. You were getting. I am like this. Frodo Baggins. Wow. I, I went there. I came back, and only after did I realize I could have just flown. <laughs> you know, uh, especially when you can ride on the back of a giant bird. You know, I have. I've noted something. You've gone from guy who barely travels, like you wouldn't even leave, to now you're going and coming back before before we even had our next show. I'm pretty impressed. You've like really got well, it down. Have you spent any significant amount of time in Florida? Mm, no, I see. I've been only there briefly. Yeah, yeah. Are you familiar with the '70s TV show Hogan he- Hogan's Heroes? <laughs> I'm not as familiar as I am with Golden Girls, which also takes place in Florida, <laughs> which is very different. <laughs> so Hogan's Heroes is a comedy. I, I'm stressing comedy. Remember, it's the '70s. Let's all calm down. About a bunch of allied POWs in a German. Con- oh, that's uh, right. POW. You're right. I am like Colonel Hogan digging under the fence to get out. The whole place <laughs> takes place in like a prisoner of war camp, doesn't it? That's the whole premise. Stalag 13, yep. Wow. Yeah. Boy, you wouldn't see that today. You wouldn't see that. You know what else you're not seeing much of is Pearl. That's where our Good. first Hoopla story takes us. Uh, employers, turns out, of course, they want JavaScript skills along with everything else they want. React.js, Angular, Node, and Python. But no Pearl. Now, I know we have a few Perl developers in the audience, and it's their day job. They write Perl all day long. I'd love to hear from them on this. Um, so it says, when it comes to uh, which programming languages are in demand by employers, JavaScript, Java, Python, C++, and C, in that order, came out on top in a recent developer study. So JavaScript, Java, Python, C++, and C. Developers, however, want to prefer to learn languages like Python, Go, and Kotlin. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. One skill to pay the bills and one skill to uh, have fun. Is that what we're coming up to? Kotlin. Interesting to see Kotlin on the list. Not too surprising to see Go. Python, Scala, Kotlin, and Ruby were all pretty high on the list. However, uh, when it came to which ones they want to write in, uh, I don't think Java was too high on the list. Node.js, for the gap there, 38 to 30% wanted it. Angular, the gap was less. 39% of employers wanted Angular, while 32% of developers having them. Any initial reactions to these kind of numbers that they're throwing around in this article? And and maybe any surprise about Kotlin? Not probably. Maybe not. Perhaps. Uh, you're, you're triggering me on Kotlin. I have, I have promised not to talk about it, but I am doing some Kotlin. Um, <laughs> but I can't tell you right now. You're doing some Kotlin. Uh, that sounds hardcore. I'm doing I, listen, Yeah, I'm doing I, Kotlin. Uh, I go to the Craigslist classified section. You know, oh, no, I'm not even going to go with this joke. Nope, too far. <laughs> so he reveals Sorry. too much. He reveals too much about Wednesday night. <laughs> uh, so what's surprising to me is how quickly Angular, I don't want to say lost, but definitely gave up market share and mind share to React. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. The, the whole thing that like people like Python is not surprising. I've done some Python. I mean, now that I'm using my uh, 
a Linux workstation that we're not going to talk about maybe later somehow. Um, I find myself having to write little Python scripts more, right? This last year of my Linux adventure involved needing to know Bash and Python. It, it, it's a little surprising. I, I guess it's surprising how much see it's it's not surprising though right that employers are really hot on javascript because that we've been talking not, no. about this for five years now that employers and clients always want commoditization they want more cheaper and faster and if you want a language that runs on all platforms um and you don't want to spend a fortune right because you could do c plus plus or c that's javascript right if you want a high level language that runs on all platforms and uh, please don't write the show i know that c is technically a high level language but you know what i mean it, it can, can i can i reframe your question instead of me being surprised can i be a little sad mm. is, that, is that okay i mean mm-hmm. where was objective c on this list because hmm. they didn't call me i can tell you one developer who likes objective c and you know it's not going to be okay is it you know there would there might have been a time though where that would have shown up on this list i haven't yeah no i think there was right Hmm. when we started the show objective c like randomly shot up what's interesting actually is i thought swift would be doing better like just based on the constant squawking i hear about swift um i was a little surprised that it wasn't slightly higher on that list yeah so hacker rank conducted the survey back in october um, and uh, they they have their methods. So I you know I guess it does come down to who did they ask, but they talked to a lot of a lot of different organizations, over thirty different companies, including Uber, Twitter, VMware, Zenefits. Um, they brought in uh, people online. I, they they had people that uh, were supposedly big developers in the app stores. I, I don't know. I don't really know what their database set is, but that's a good point. It's not a good showing for Apple. And uh, you know, you know, it's not a you know, it's not a legitimate study of uh, what developers really want because uh, nobody said Rust. If Rust was in the list, then you'd know this was a legitimate. Study. <laughs> or at least it wasn't done in our Discord channel. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, huge news this week that uh, is going to affect a lot of people on how they deploy applications. Red Hat is snapping up CoreOS, which is really a Kubernetes play and a container marketplace play for two hundred and fifty million dollars. That's a cheap price. That's it. That's it. That's maybe I think. What do you think, Mike? The best deal of the that year, maybe? Even cost you an Instagram. What, what, what happened? I know. <laughs> I think they got the best deal of 2018 already at the beginning of the year. Red Hat has the best deal. Maybe the best deal of the 2000s period. Like, yeah. Yeah. These guys, so, these guys at Chorus and Gals are really sharp people. No, they, re- they really. Chorus is actually, it, it's even making my eye wander away from the, the beauty of the Docker whale a little bit. Yeah, they have they have done a really good job too of uh, making it so that you could use parts of the Docker components if you want. If you want to use some of the like Docker Swarm and orchestration tools, you can. Um, but they've in the behind the scenes, they've been getting a lot of big industry support, like Linux Foundation and the the cloud uh, cloud native initiative, and all of these different whatever it's called these different. Uh, or uh, industry trade groups that are coming together and saying this is the standard stack you should use when you're trying to accomplish X Y Z, and a lot of CoreOS's stuff is in there. Yeah, well, you've heard you've heard the conspiracy theory about Red Hat, right? No, I, well, I mean probably, but I don't know. Maybe I haven't. Do, do you want to take this tangent? You have to trust me on this one. You know how I get. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm curious because I'm trying to figure out. I guess what I'll just say is. I get it. I get why they're making the purchase. Absolutely. In fact, I think they needed to make the purchase, but I don't quite get what they're doing with Red Hat Enterprise and Fedora and CentOS and Fedora Atomic and now CoreOS, and they're going to supposedly keep them all separate when it feels like this should all be one me- mega product somehow. I don't really get their strategy overall. So I- I'd be curious to know what a theory so what is. What do you think their strategy is? I'm just going to tell you, but I want to hear what you think first. Well, we'll with the purchase that. of CoreOS, I think the strategy is to have some real skin in the container game. That they've been getting left behind by Ubuntu and Alpine and and uh, AWS Linux and, and other other purpose built container systems like CoreOS, and while Red Hat is supposed to dominate the server market, this container space, even though even though they were you know even though they shipped Docker uh, a Red Hat Enterprise ago, um, it feels like they haven't gotten the traction that some of the other distributions have. So my theory is they've just bought legitimacy into the marketplace even more so than they already had with their brand name. And they just brought on a whole bunch of talented developers, is my thinking. Mm. What? You, you don't agree? What are your, what's your theory? 
So it actually goes all the way. So it's in the name Red Hat, right? It goes all the way back to 1976, believe it or not, uh, when a young man out of St. Louis, Louis, Missouri, named Red Fox started hitting the nightclub circuit preaching Unix. Then in the 80s, a man named Raymond Reddington was framed for espionage, which in the early 90s triggered the hunt for Red October. Okay. Then, are you you following me so far? I mean, I'm loving it so far. Then an elite bomber squadron called the Red Wings, not X-Wings, Red Wings, took off and did some airstrikes right out there in Seattle somewhere. And that's how Red Hat was formed. It's See, it's a deep state, I'm sorry, a red state conspiracy. Oh, man, red state, red state. So it's a, de- it's a deep red state. Hashtag release the red memo. <laughs> that is a pretty solid theory, and it makes sense. And if you think about it, a lot of this has all been kind of just coming into place since those initiative, initial moves back in the 70s. Profound, Mr. Dominic, profound. You know what the sick part about this is? What? I think I may be the only podcaster to ever somehow has Red Fox into it. <laughs> And and, and you are the only you like you you are like Sean Hannity. You're the only broadcaster who has the courage to go on the air and the say courage. this. Yeah, the courage. And, and and when all my Red Hat instances stop booting tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily I don't run them. If you want another theory as to what might be going on, uh, check out a little plug here for techsnap.systems/slash/three fifty three. Too many containers. Just before the news, we decided to do an introduction episode to Kubernetes. What problems it solves why everyone's talking about kubernetes right now and the fact that it came from google and some of its some of its history um and maybe also who shouldn't be using kubernetes that's covered in the show too and so it's kind of perfect timing if you want more context it's techsnap.systems slash 353 just a mr west Payne and i you remember wes that guy that guy knows his container orchestration software. He is he's living that stuff every single day. Multiple configuration management systems because he he inherited some stuff. I don't want to say too much out of, out of respect to his privacy, but I'll just say you know we talk about technical debts. <laughs> oh man, that man inherited some technical debt, and uh, so he's managing multiple configuration management systems and build and deploy systems at the same time with different sets of developers using different systems and expect state to be shared between them and all kinds of great stuff. It's the worst, but it inspires some fantastic TechSnap episodes. So there's a there's a silver lining for me. <laughs> Poor Wes. Oh yes, you're you're really good at monetizing people's suffering. I've noticed that. <laughs> no, you you know you're thinking of Mark Zuckerberg. You're thinking of Mark. Yeah. Oh, ooh, dude. Mm. Too much. Um, speaking of some suffering, uh, this must have been a rough last year for the Pixel team. I mean, not only are they trying to keep their eye on the ball and stay competitive when the Galaxy phones and the iPhone are more competitive than ever right now, um, but they're also wrapping up that big merger between Googs and HTC. Remember how we just talked about CoreOS being worth $250 million? Well, HTC was worth $1.1 billion to Google back when they bought it. Uh, what was that, a few months? When did they announce that? Last year? Um, yeah, it was a while ago. It seems was it, like was it, it was. already a year? Yeah. Uh, so, but today, today, Google announced that the deal is closed and that HTC employees are officially joining Google. The, the Google Pixel XL and the Pixel 2, if you recall – were different hardware manufacturers. HTC made one and LG made the other, which, uh, wow, what a yeah. strategy that is. What a, what a weird strategy. Now you've got to figure with these 2,000 HTC employees coming over to Google and joining the hardware team, who is – the hardware team is being run by the former Motorola CEO that ran their hardware team. Ooh, then that went so well. Um, so – doesn't this remind you of another case where a large software company bought a major manufacturer of their mobile platform? This is their second time. Remember they bought Motorola too, and then they well, sold it. Yeah, right. And, and, but you're thinking of Nokia Samsung. and Microsoft. I'm aren't thinking you? of Nokia, but yeah, you're right. They bought Motorola. Google actually yeah. did this once before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's weird that um, it's weird that they've they've had such a even when the Pixel came out, the fact that they went HTC and LG is strange. That's odd. Well. E- you have to go back a couple years, right? I mean, even on yes. this very show, we used to talk about how Google ended up selling Motorola. The, the rumor slash semi-confirmed story from the tech press was because of pressure from Samsung, right? That Google could, and also for patents, right? They kept the patents. Yeah. Um, it's it. So I have always felt that, like, this is my strategy for everything, right? Like, you, I would prefer to buy hardware 
we'll talk about this later, from a vendor who is solely focused on the software platform and it integrates that platform, right? I always felt that Google should have just kept Motorola and, you know, pumped out some phones. Yeah. Uh, although it's weird to buy uh, HTC now unless they're thinking they're going to manufacture wearables and uh, probably uh, lady tubes. Because, I mean, the the Android phone market, is that is that where you're going to fight on the hardware side? It seems crazy. Although HTC does have some impressive VR stuff. Right. I mean, it's easy to pigeonhole them into phones, but they actually do have some other uh, more uh, nascent projects that are pretty interesting. Um, You know, in terms of what happens with the Pixel, I kind of think that was yesterday's war, right? The whole mobile phone, even Apple's not selling that many iPhone 10s. I was literally thinking the same thing this morning. Literally, they plateaued. Yep. They're good enough. Yeah. Yeah, they're getting, you know, it's funny. So the two things about this story that jump out at me, 2,000 employees to do what HTC did. And you look at projects like the Librem 5 or Ubuntu's now uh, scuttled um, Ubuntu Touch project, 2,000 employees is what it took these companies. So that's what they had to scale up to, to pull this market off. That's insane. <laughs> it's not going to be 2,000 for long, though, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, good point, good point. Yeah, yeah those yeah. pink slips are coming. Yeah. But then the other thing that strikes me is just sort of how it kind of feels like the war for the desktop is sort of fading, and now it's more about services and ongoing subscriptions and software as a service, and Windows may be the platform that delivers that, Mac OS, Linux may be. Kind of feels like that's already happening to the phone market too. App yeah, stores I, I, are essentially getting the same critical apps, and you have access to the same essential APIs and web services. Yeah, the, the only time I think about iOS versus Android uh, anymore is if someone asks me to build something that I can't access something on iOS, right? But honestly, the future, the wave going forward is forget mobile phone platforms. That's just like a really expensive way to do your solution. Go ahead and order some, uh, you know, TI boards or, or ADA boards, or you could get, I mean, ADA boards and Raspberry Pi boards are relatively expensive, but you could order in bulk. You know, I have a couple Texas instrument boards right here in the closet that are pretty good. And obviously there's a bunch of Chinese manufacturers who will sell similar stuff for a lot cheaper and hell, you know what? Some of these boards, I, I mean, I, this cheapo one I have here has like a gig of Ram, right? You can run a JVM on that and you just, th- you know, think about you're deploying a few hundreds of, of these devices. Why have a mobile phone if the person's not actually using it for touch software or, uh, or as an actual phone, when you can just deploy these boards, right, in in simple cases and, and be done. Yeah, and if if uh, the if the user that's interacting with it is using text or voice or screen, like you need something that can fit all of those different use cases. Something chewing away on the back end and spitting out a result can format the result in, say, a voice response or a text response that fits on a wearable. Or, I mean, what 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 I was saying before, like a lot of the Android work, was we have this proprietary internal um, app. You know, we being like some random company, right, would have a one a proprietary internal touch application, and the choice was, well, Apple won't really let us do this because we want to build like a custom kiosk or whatever. It's you know kind of a pain in the ass to do that with iOS, um, and they would choose Windows or Android, right? And it was about fifty fifty. Well, why, why actually have a full-scale tablet and a full-scale computer system if you're doing a wide deployment? And yeah. if your interaction model is going to be voice, well, now you don't need the expensive touchscreen. And I say expensive relative to, like, you're ordering a couple hundred of these, right? Not relative to, you know, 50 bucks. Um, it, it seems like I'm, I'm looking more at these. I, I don't want to use the buzzword IoT because it's not, I mean, it paints, it, the bad, I mean. it paints the wrong picture, though. It, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I don't like the way IoT is reported on because people, you know, my chair could be IoT. People, like, yeah. everything is IoT now. Yeah. Um, like, a dumb coffee maker across the room is, I guess, it's a, it, it does have a Wi-Fi connection, which is not activated, by the way, and is hardware disabled. Uh, can we say embedded? Like, I want to say, like, one step above that in terms of abstraction. But basically, like, what about What about just headless? Right? Just say headless for now. Is yeah, I would say like headless because because basically these are headless Linux systems, right? And you know it's it's just a factor of like where we are in the technology cycle and Moore's law that RAM is super cheap, and 
it is hard to buy these boards. Even and, and Raspberry Pi boards, let's put those, let's put added boards aside. Let's talk about no-name boards from like your local manufacturer. We have a few down here in Florida that I'm looking at. You know, it's hard to get less than, you know, 512 RAM. And, and the and the average, the standard seems to be one gig for most of them. So with one gig, hell, you can run uh, you can run Windows IoT. I don't know why you would, but you could. Um, or yeah. you could run an embedded version of Linux with a, with a full JVM and do things that way. If you really want to be hardcore and if you have high performance needs, you could do a C++, a Go, a Rust, right? And your cost per unit is just dramatically lower. Yeah, and it's just going to get cheaper as long as smartphones are still being manufactured because a lot of these technologies, the manufacturing practices, right. some of the components are shared across smartphone devices. They're getting made at a massive scale now. Boom. Makes it cheaper to do it. Yeah, it's a very interesting observation because on the flip side, <clears throat> going back to kiosk, so I was at this uh, – I spent – you and I did an episode last week from the canonical Snap event. And so I spent the week down there – well, most of the week down there in, in Seattle at this event. And one of the things I noticed is the Hilton Hotel is using IMAX in the lobby as kiosk machines. And uh, they're running uh, OS 10.8, which is pretty old at this point. And uh, it's – I think it took Noah and I 45 seconds to break out of the kiosk mode and basically own the system uh, because there's so much going on there. There's so much there's, – there's, there's an entire operating system. There is a music suite installed. There's a calendar, a web browser and a terminal and all of these little tools that are in there that we can take advantage of and uh, get out of the sandbox. And these um, – Headless systems are purpose-built. So not only are they cheaper, but they're purpose-built for the task at hand. So they could have had a touchscreen display or an information display with a voice assistant, especially when you look at projects like uh, Mozilla's uh, uh, Common Voice project that uh, is actually a legitimate data set of, for voice that people can start using. We may start having mass voice that's pow not powered by echoes, but it's just powered by developers implementing their own speech recognition, maybe using common sets of libraries and data sets with purpose-built hardware that is headless, probably running some kind of Linux, and they're going to be able to bang out uh, – Ten, ten times as many in those hotels, they'll be in every room at that cost because they won't be buying $1,000 iMacs for every lobby station. It'll be a $45, $50 computer board that uh, is going to get flashed exactly with their software. It's only going to do their purpose thing, and it's going to be hardware built just to do that one, one or two things, and um, they'll have full control from the product beginning to end. It just seems it seems inevitable because it's it's so much more approachable than like a thousand dollar iMac, and it's totally leveraging like the business's investments in their own technology, and it's also taking advantage of wider market dynamics, which is the smartphones pushing the costs of these devices way way down, and then you bring in consumer ready. Easy to understand, like wide developer adoption, purpose built technology OSs like Linux and Android, and it's just going to blow up eventually. I mean, it already is blowing up. That's already happening, but I think it's just the beginning. Well, and and the other, I mean, not not to, and I know this is like we're beating a horse to death here, but you know, just in the brief period we've been doing the show, uh, platform availability in terms of like development platforms have really expanded on these you know these embedded devices or whatever mm -hmm. i mean it is trivial to do something like run a clr or a jvm on them now right it's um you you know languages like kotlin we mentioned kotlin kotlin actually did you know this chris can compile into native code so you don't have to run it on the jvm if you don't want to let's say you're in a more uh resource constrained environment Yeah, yeah. So, you're, and the point being that Kotlin's sort of choice for these devices. Did you just bring it all back? Wow. Well done, sir. Well done. I'm getting better at this. Yeah, you, you, you took. You were so smooth; it took me by surprise. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of so smooth, it'll take you by surprise. DigitalOcean.com. Go over there and create your account, and then apply our promo code Coder Digital and get a ten dollar credit. It's a. It's a. Well, I, boy, I don't even want to call it a cloud hosting provider. It's it's a computing platform. In fact, now they have more purpose built droplets that are dynamic. You can mix and match storage and CPU requirements. They also have high memory droplets and very, very fast CPU droplets. And then, of course, they have their traditional droplets, like the $5 a month. You use our promo code CoderDigital, you get a $10 credit. You could try that rig out two months 
for free. DigitalOcean.com. Go create the account and then try out the promo code Coder Digital, or go have some fun with that promo code and and try it out on their high CPU or high memory droplets. It's a lot of fun. They have a straightforward, easy to use dashboard that makes managing your infrastructure a snap. They have data centers all over the world. You can seamlessly deploy an entire application stack like GitLab or just the base OS, like Core OS. That's available on DigitalOcean. You can manage, secure, scale, and monitor your entire application stack from the DigitalOcean interface. Built-in monitoring metrics, firewalls that are impl- that are applied at the, the network level, so that way the traffic never even reaches your rig. And they have some great documentation. DigitalOcean.com. Create the account and then use our promo code CODERDIGITAL and then head over to their documentation page. You're going to love this if you've been thinking about Python. They're launching a new ebook series, How to Code in Python. They're taking everything they did great about their tutorials, which there are many, the structure, the easy-to-follow contents, the well-written uh, – if you're watching the video version, I'm, I'm showing a, a version of it right here. Like code blocks are easily identifiable. Everything is very simple. I love their formatting, and they're applying that to an ebook that you can download for free as a PDF or an EPUB, or go read it on their website. How to Code in Python, an ebook published by DigitalOcean. They just published this a couple of days ago. It's new, it's awesome. And I believe a little birdie tells me it may be part one of a 39 ebook series. I don't know how that works. I don't even know what that means. Because that's just, that's, I mean, maybe it's 39 pages. I don't know. It, it, it's incredible. you got to go check it out. All of their documentation is top-notch, best in the industry. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. SSDs for all of their rigs, 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisor, just about any distro you'd possibly ever want to run on a server and FreeBSD are available. They have back-end private networking. They have object storage available and block storage. It's a very flexible, very powerful. And now with even better, more competitive prices. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code CODERDIGITAL and save $10. DigitalOcean.com, promo code CODERDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. And thanks to you guys for supporting our sponsors and keeping us going. So despite how much you and I try to avoid it, because our instincts tell us we should do otherwise, we've been doing this long enough now, we've almost hit 300 episodes, we know better. But we can't get off a singular topic because this is, this is really the ramifications of 2017. 2017 was a journey for Mike and I to redoing the workflow that we have in our computers, in our laptops, in our, in our touch devices. I reloaded the whole studio to Linux. I redid my machines. It was a big walk. We also tried out Windows 10 for a bit, bounced around on the Mac platform. And uh, this week, I upended all of it. <laughs> I just am such an idiot. And I won't, but I'm, I'm telling you and I'm sharing this with the audience so that way, hopefully, you can live vicariously through me. Because I know how tempting sometimes when you have a problem, it can be so tempting to try to buy a new tool or find a new tool or a new yeah. piece of technology to solve your problem when that's not really the problem. So I... I'm live through me as I go through these different experiences. This week, I've reloaded all of my systems to KDE Neon, the Plasma desktop. No more. Okay, no. Can I stop you right there? Yeah, yeah. When you say all, you act like production. We're talking here. The, this very machine that you and I are talking on right now is You're running out the, of your mind. <laughs> you, you it's the only way I can live it. Mind. It's I. You know. It's because you know the thing is, is if I don't put it on my production systems, I never. They never quite break for me the way that they break when they're in production. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... It, I just want you to know, I spend hours trying to avoid things breaking in yeah. production. Oh, okay. I test it right, I'll stuff. let you keep going. No, keep going. I just, I just wanted to make sure you weren't yeah. gaslighting no. us a little bit. No, no, right. no. Yeah, I, I really have. And um, it's been an upheaval a bit. You know, I've, I've, I've sometimes, like, forgot I hadn't synced down a couple of notes or something like that. So it's, it's bit me a couple of times. But for the most part, I do this enough now that I have a good, like, uh, checklist of testing down that works. But I tell you what... Um, I don't know how to put this without breaking people's confidentiality. I've had conversations recently and the technical issues that are facing GNOME are greater than I originally had a full appreciation for. And um, in such, I have lost my confidence in recommending it 
to the audience because I feel like I'm recommending them something that roughly has the architecture design and stability of classic Mac OS. And I mean that sincerely. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, I've heard – I just heard – I heard horror story after horror story recently and um, talked to some developers and I got a picture that I realized the GNOME project is facing this major fork in the road. They either have to re-architect the way they're in, the entire GNOME desktop works for GNOME 4, uh, spin out – uh, the compositor and the shell and the animations and the extensions into their own individual processes and then create an API for those extensions and create an IPC system for all of those individual processes to communicate and break all extension compatibility. And extensions are a critical part to making the GNOME desktop usable. Or they kick the can down the road and ship GNOME 4 as a single-threaded desktop even the extensions are all part of the same process. Some random first time I've ever written code in my whole life shipping GNOME extension extension can take down your whole desktop. And when you're on the Wayland compositor, when you're using Wayland and their compositor on Wayland, Mutter, since it's all one single thread, any of those crashes takes out your entire graphical environment. And there is no recovery because there's no X mm. server to reconnect to and restart the session. So you'd lose your system. It, it goes down. So one, I think you just solved the problem or explained a problem for me. So you're saying any extension that glitches can basically crash the entire UI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And these uh. extensions are just ripping out JavaScript and injecting JavaScript in random places. And people that are writing themes are searching theme files for hex codes. They're swapping out hex codes and they're applying it and see reloading the shell. And because no, nothing's documented, nothing's written down. There's no official API for extensions to use. There's no official API for themes to use. People are just ripping out code and replacing code. <laughs> That's just how they're doing it. Like classic Mac. That's what that's what extensions did on the Mac. That's what res. Yeah. That's what resource editors did on the Macs. Yeah, classic cla- Mac OS nine. I mean, I did not use it, but it was bad. Yeah. So the shell is single threaded, and the whole thing, including the animations, the compositor, and the desktop shell itself. Now, things like files and GNOME, you know, G edit. Those things are separate processes. But what were you having? What was happening to you? Because it sounds like it sounds like you and I were having similar experiences later. This was my solution. I'm- was um so this is before so i have ended up uh see i i want to let you finish first but yeah i i did end up deleting a bunch of gnome apps because i just yeah it was unstable and i thought it was the apps well i'll just finish by saying so this week me and several members of the audience uh including popey uh from ubuntu podcast um, and uh, people on our Telegram group and people on Twitter, we're all taking – and I welcome anybody else to do this as well. We're all taking the KDE Neon Challenge. Uh, we're, mm. we're grabbing the user edition of KDE Neon. Now, here's what I like about it, Mike. First of all, this is what the Plasma desktop developers are pretty much using themselves, a lot of them, um, including people that I know in the project and the, the sort of the leading edge of the project, people that are, are – that are um, making a big difference in the project, they're using Neon themselves. So this is – they're dogfooding this distro. Um, it gets the new desktop uh, almost immediately when there's a new version released, which is kind of nice because sometimes that's something you'd have to wait for in the past. It's based on Ubuntu LTS. Right now it's based on 16.04. So this is this is the dream in Linux and it actually is happening here with KDE Neon. So that's one of the reasons I'm giving Neon specifically a go. It is a stable, solid core that gets very little changes and then a rolling user land on top of that. And they're going to move to 1804 when 1804 ships. I don't know how fast, but eventually they'll move to 1804. And then they will just keep rolling the desktop. And because they're the developers of the desktop themselves, it seems to be like a, it's a pretty smooth upgrade process. Um, and I think a new version of the desktop ships tomorrow. So I'll be testing that. I think 512 ships tomorrow. Um, but so far, it's been a pretty great experience. And my battery life has improved. My performance has improved. It wakes and uh, it goes to sleep faster. Like, it's a pretty nice – it's been a pretty nice improvement over, over GNOME. So I have a few questions. Now, I've, I've heard of the Plasma desktop a few times. My one dumb user-level question is, 
I've heard things about some weird Android autom- oh, uh, yeah, there is. integration. Yeah, How yeah. How does that work? What is that? Exactly? So I'm not really using that a lot, but I have used it in the past. Uh, they call it KDE Connect, and uh-huh. um, it synchronizes notifications across your machine, and um, you can do file transfers. and well, it, messages. Yes, and messages, and um, and I think maybe wait, wait, D&D wait. status, and also um, – uh, I'm blanking on there. Uh, there's some other nice features of KD Connect. I'll look it up here for a second. Can I send an SMS message from without any other software from uh, this through an Android phone? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if I've done that because I don't SMS much. Um, I could look okay. it up for you though if you want because it's pretty <laughs> slick. It is. A pr- well, I mean, I'm just thinking that would be like a Linuxy answer to iMessage, right? Oh it's, yeah, it's very true, message. very true. Yeah. Um, so here's here's what it says. It's, oh yeah, that was the one I was forgetting. Multimedia remote controls. So you can use your phone to stop and start music on your PC. Shared clipboards. Uh, you can share URLs between your computer and any app. Uh, virtual touchpad, so you can use your phone as a computer touchpad. Uh, notification sync and uh, Wi-Fi connection. Uh, no USB wire needed. So that's also really cool. But I don't see anything on there about SMS messages. So if anybody knowing, if anybody watching knows, uh, let us know. But so, yeah, KDE Connect is that's part of it. Um, you can use that. It's pretty so okay. So this is interesting, right? Because one, I've been uh, quietly complaining about GNOME for the better part of this year uh, and cheating on GNOME with Aqua, which is the Mac environment, right? It seems to me that the root – I don't, I can't speak for you, but I'm, I'm curious if this is what your issue is, that basically any time I install an extension, my system becomes radically unstable. I have had I had an extension that monitored my um, CPU and memory and disk, and it put them up in a meter up in the menu bar. You've probably seen like there's ISTAT yeah. menu for the Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually find that yeah. when I'm encoding video and whatnot to be a pretty useful metric on how hard my system's working, how how useful the, the or how well the different software utilizes my core. So I thought oh, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go on GNOME. And uh, I was going about my day, and I noticed that uh, about uh, every second. My mouse would freeze for a brief tick and then continue yep. on, and uh, I discovered that it was actually that extension. I had to go and install that extension. Uh, here's if you want to try out the Plasma Desktop. So here's here's Chris's tip to success because I've tried I've I've gone down this route before. Um, the mindset is this: you'll have to change a thousand defaults, but it'll mm-hmm. be you won't have to deal with instability. You won't have to deal with crashing. So while GNOME is a little more sane out of the box, maybe a little more visually appealing out of the box, defaults are a little bit more my preference out of the box, it becomes an unstable mess after a couple of months, whereas the Plasma desktop is properly architected from a technical standpoint, how they're handling Wayland, how the, how the different parts of the Plasma desktop communicate with each other. They solved those problems ages ago, and now for, for, for about two years now, they've just been working on refinement releases, which is really paying off. And there are still a lot of defaults you have to change. I set mine to a dark theme. If you're installing on a high DPI screen, you got to go change four different settings, including like fonts and mouse cursors and scaling it's settings. But stupid. Yeah, but once you do it all, it's really solid. And it feels like a powerful workstation. And there's a lot of nice features just built into the default apps, like console and and KWrite, their text editor. That you go, damn, why aren't other desktops doing this? Like there's legitimately new stuff in here that Windows and Mac OS and GNOME haven't done. A lot of people say okay. Linux doesn't innovate. Well, they're not running the Plasma desktop because there's new stuff in there. And it's nice. And yes, look at that. You can send SMS messages using KDE Hi. Connect. So, so this sounds like something I would try when 18, 18, uh, 1804 sure. comes yeah, out. Yeah, that'd be a good time. have some of those defaults tweaked out. So – do you have anything more on the key? No, nope, that's uh, it. Uh, uh, okay. Anyways, doing that this week, I'll probably talk more about on Linux Unplugged. I won't. I won't burn a lot of your ear time up here, pe- peeps. But no. uh, more. No, I, I'm. I'm. I'm going to throw some Molotov cocktails myself. Okay, what uh, happened? Tell me about it. Come on so, in. So, my standard is a little. I would say more mm, picky than yours. I think okay. we've established that. Okay. Right? All right. Like, fair. I'm much less willing to like, oh, you have to fix it. Right. You have to, yeah, yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of my pitch with the Plasma desktop is like, yeah, you're going to have to tweak some stuff. Right, which which right, right, right off the bat is like gone, right? So I ordered that Optiplex from Dell. 
with the assurance that even though it was the one I ordered had Windows 10 pre-installed, it was 100% Ubuntu compatible. Ubuntu specifically, right? Uh-oh. That is true-ish. Ish. Um, it has been okay. I had to do a little bit of a grub voodoo to get it to boot. Every time it restarts, it hangs because it doesn't like the driver on the graphics card. I downloaded an AMD driver. Oh, yeah. It still freaks out. I was worried about um, that AMD driver problem. <laughs> it it seems basically that it's like a, a an issue with the AMD driver. The network card is running pretty slow. I called Dell, and they said, oh, it should be compatible. But, you know, had you ordered one that was not on sale from the Linux side of the business, we would have given you a different network card. Oh. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, really? You are free to purchase that network card. I asked for a return slip in response to that. Because my – I just want to – so I know I plug them a lot, System76, and if only the Galico had better battery life, <laughs> And your fan's better fan. now? You, you, oh, good. Fan good. is better. Battery good. life is terrible. Huh. But they, and I don't know how they would fix the battery life, right? Because they would have to, like, take it and change the hardware. Um, my expectation so, – so, so we've heard – like, there's a lot of people blogging and, like, podcasting about, like, switching from Mac to Linux or whatever. I do not believe if you're doing this, you should grade on a curve, right? You shouldn't say – Oh, but because it's cheaper, or oh, but because this, I'm going to you know, do all this work to make it work, right? I'm going to go get an after-party or after-install network card and do that. Or I'm going to compile some random dude's uh, modification to a driver he has on GitHub, right? Which I'm not going to do for lots of reasons, including paranoia and security. So if you sell me a machine that you say is Ubuntu compatible out of the box, if it is not in any trivial way, I think it fails the test. I mean, is that a fair? Yeah, if you're selling it as yeah, yep. I think if you're selling it as a Ubuntu compatible, or because or even if you even if you, I would say, really, even if you just look up the parts and go, yeah, okay, all this stuff should be supported. If it's if you know if so if the company like say Intel is making a driver or AMD is making a driver and says, yeah, we make a Linux version, then you should expect it to work. Well, the, the ir- irony is someone's mentioning in the chat. I actually went with AMD over NVIDIA because I thought oh, yeah. it was the only better. the only graphics card that is one hundred percent zero hassle, no setup, works every time. Every distro is Intel graphics. Right. Which, by the way, I can't plug my monitor into the AMD card at all. Mm. Has to go into the, the Intel. NVIDIA graphics. So here's the. This is you got you got fucked by the Linux community in a way that they do this. They do this to everyone. And the the meme goes like this. AMD is a better open source company. They support open source more. And AMD graphics work great on my right. machine and they're more open. Now uh, – and then they'll say NVIDIA sucks. Linus hates them. Their proprietary blob has does all kinds of secret voodoo. That's probably all true. In my practical experience, distributions have gotten more practiced at shipping the NVIDIA driver and making it automatically mm-hmm. set up. So there's just more infrastructure for just hitting a button. You've got the NVIDIA driver and everything works. And aside from that, if you want to hit no buttons, the only thing that does that is Intel. It's the only one because yeah, it's baked it's into the kernel. Yeah, that's probably fair. I mean, and, and the real issue here is probably more like the Dell rip I spoke to. It was like an expectations mismatch. You know, he had on a piece of paper that, yep, Ubuntu compatible. Yeah. And yeah. in reality, it wasn't, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, this baby's going back to UPS. So what what replaces it, have you decided? Nothing right now. Now, um, ironically, being so... What so lesson another, can you take from this, though, before you buy the next one? Honestly, I think... One, I can't do the Dell sale thing because those are all Windows machines, right? Um, and two, if I'm going to buy a Linux workstation, I have to buy it like either – I mean Dell is a Linux vendor, right? But you have to buy the one that is uh, pre-configured, right? Or you buy it from someone, you know, whatever, System76 or I forgot the name of the other company that people talk about. 
Pogo Linux or something. You know, I would, but, I, I'll clarify my statement. I guess uh, I would say this. The Ubuntu's have more infrastructure around supporting the NVIDIA driver. So, right, but I only care about Ubuntu, right? Yeah. So, so for me, for because for, you know what? I want an, in reality, what I'm looking for is a Unix workstation, right? And I'm using Unix in quotes, right? a Nix workstation that is super stable. So really, I want an 1804 machine that I can If FreeBSD was it, I mean, you probably wouldn't care, would you? If it was FreeBSD, as long as it was well-supported, it had all the applications you own, the development environments you needed. I mean, I get the sense that it's even – or if it was Fedora that could do it, if it had wide industry support and a lot of people were running it on servers and clients had heard the name Fedora before. Like it's it's not so much a allegiance to Ubuntu or an allegiance to Dell. It is simply a Unix workstation that has the widest industry support I can possibly get for a reasonable price. Um, well, it's, 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 even, it's even simpler than that, though, if I can just jump in here. So by not going Mac, I am saving roughly two to $3,000, right? But two to three thousand dollars for a developer who's a consultant is not that much t- when you convert it to time, right? So it has to not cost me a ton of time. So if you think about it, I had the machine for a week. So already having problems, my tolerance is zero. Hmm. A year, I have more tolerance um, because that. And maybe this is like a, a negative in the freedom dimension way to look at life, but I consider the savings on the hardware and the upgradability as a function of money, which itself is a function of time, right? Okay, so you're saying okay, so you're saying that uh, if the machine saves you time, uh, then that is also a va- as valuable as an upgrade is. I'm saying that let's say the machine is two thousand dollars cheaper than the equivalent Mac. Let's just spitball a number, right? Yeah. It has less than $2,000 of time that I'm willing to deal with it in terms of – because using Linux over Mac OS actually requires some configuration on my part. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So things like stability issues, it's not worth it, right? That savings over amortized over a year or two just isn't worth – not worth it. Plus I mean, frustration and stress. Well, frustration and – but ironically, the, the hero of this whole situation ended up being my Galago Pro because I, it, its battery life can't live more than like three and a half hours, which is annoying. But you know what? It does the job and it, it has ironically become my primary dev machine. Hmm. Oh, Dell. Oh, Dell. Yeah, you know, I understand. It's it's when you get something and it fails, you have even less capacity for the next thing to fail. Like, it's you know, it, it's I, just yeah. so frustrating you know, at that point. I've a lot of Dell towers in my time, and I've returned roughly half of them. But I'm also super picky, right? I am the typical Mac buyer. I'm like, mm, didn't work out of the box. Bye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's yeah. that's that's what they're going for though with these with the like the that's what system 76 is going for with the galago and dell's going for with the xps 13 they're going for that out of the box you open it up there's the ubuntu screen and you start getting to work within five ten minutes that's what you want um i understand i understand what about um i mean you know the thing is the thing is is that now you gotta now you gotta start calculating the weight gain because wwdc is just a few months away and there's more and more rumors that they're going to announce more professional equipment at WWDC, perhaps something that starts before $5,000, maybe more like at $3,000. I mean, <laughs> how long can you stretch? Who's the thriftiness of that? I know. I, it is you – know, it is, you're making a fair point. I don't really have a defense for it. Uh, it I really don't have a defense for uh, spending a bit more and – um, no, I mean, if that iMac Pro was three grand, that would be the answer to the problem, right? Like, five K is just expensive enough yeah. that it, it's it's a tough decision for me to make. It's to separate the cream from the rest of the milk, Mister Dominic. Can't you well, tell? Well, and, and I mean, there's other things. It's optimized for like video production. Like, it, if I was to spend that kind of money, it is not the type of, the configuration I would go for. One, it would be a tower that I can upgrade later. Yeah, but that's just me. It's a negative in the freedom. So you're saying if there was like a hypothetical three thousand dollar like entry level iMac or Mac Pro, is yeah. that what you're getting at? Yeah, or they or they revamp the Mac Mini and once you make it useful, that's how much it costs. <laughs> so that's my that's my well, that's sorry, my what? conspiracy. You, yeah, no, my conspiracy is the whole reason they haven't said. See, if they were going to end the Mac Mini, they would have just killed the product line, like they do everything else. Once they're done making it, they just stop selling it. 
Um, but if they're going to keep making it, they keep selling the old one until they replace it. That's that's basic Apple math right there. And so the Mini has been held around because my suspicion is they've rebooted what they're going to do with it internally a couple of times with all this other stuff where they reverted on only shipping. They reverted on the whole professional stuff. I mean, they had that whole that whole bring devout, that bring the journalists in, set them down, and tell them that we care about professionals again, and we're going to make a Mac Pro moment. And I bet you that the part that didn't come up in the conversation was we have plans for the Mac Mini too. My bet is that that's going to be their low entry professional. Yeah, but the Mac Mini was never a exactly pro level device. It's a whole new Mac Mini. That'll be the it, whole so pitch. You're, you're thinking it's a Mac Mini in name only, basically in size. Yeah, it's going to be. I'd say probably more. It's, it's going to be like, like a, a souped up Nuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dude, there's what was that Nuck from CES? If that's yeah. what that is, I'm exactly. I'm they totally really with that. honestly yes, really. If yeah, they no, just that, reshipped think. that, if they just took Intel's most recent Nuck, the one that has. All the Thunderbolt 3 and the integrated AMD graphics, which is the one that Apple seems to prefer to ship, uh, they could they could just repackage that in an Apple box. Charge you eight hundred dollars, nine hundred dollars for that thing. Oh, they're gonna try. So, so this is the problem. I mean, I mean, um, actually, you you kind of beat me with my own argument, though. Yeah, because sure, if if this theoretical machine was like two twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars, it's the obvious choice, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it works with everything I have. It solves all my problems. Um, I don't believe so. My belief is that the Mac, there is no new Mac Mini, and the or, or it's nothing that I would want. And the Mac Pro is going to be like eight thousand dollars to start. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. if you're right, then that I would imagine that would undercut iMac Pro sales pretty pretty significantly. Which is probably one of the reasons why it was first out the door. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, we'll, so, see. we'll see. So you're saying like a high end machine, not running Xeons, running in, yeah. running i7s. Yeah. I mean, with a lot of RAM and a and a big SSD. Yeah, that's exactly what I want. I mean, yep. that's exactly what I want. And that thing, the the uh, whatever they call that new NUC, I'm I'm blanking on the name. The one with the integrated AMD GPU is um. So it's you know it's got essentially dedicated graphics, but it's like a it's like a mobile desktop hybrid graphics chip. But it gives you, you know, real, true, genuine graphics performance um, with a low power and a low thermal output. I mean, it's it's right up Apple's alley. They they almost would be negligent if they don't if they don't just package that thing up and ship it because it's it's it's, it's got Thunderbolt up the yin yang. It's got it's got all the stuff that they're all up, um, uh, really fast SSDs, i seven processors, integrated graphics. I mean, it's it's just it'd be perfect. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, speaking, it depends uh, on how much they care. Yeah, but we'll we'll see. We have more to get to though, so we should keep going on. Uh, Do it. This uh, this uh, this workflow stuff. I'll be curious to hear where it goes for you. I may report back in a bit, and I encourage the audience to try it out with me. It's just fun to change it up and and actually to see some really cool new stuff on the Linux desktop. Again, user edition of KDE Neon. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. Go there to support the show and sign up for a free seven-day trial of a platform built around Linux to teach you more about this ever-growing platform. Linux Academy is a full-featured training library with everything you need to learn new skills and advance your career. With everything, and I mean everything, from self-paced in-depth video courses, hands-on scenario-based labs, learning paths, which are sets of courseware that are planned specifically by their instructors. Oh, and speaking of instructors, full-time instructors available to help you, practice exams, flashcards forked by the community, certification-specific training, and much more. Go to linuxacademy.com slash coders to sign up for a free seven-day trial and just try it out yourself. Check out the study tools like the guides and lesson audio that you can download and listen to offline. They have iOS and Android apps. That's pretty nice as well. And then if you just have a, a, a slim, limited amount of time, if you, don't have a, if you don't have like hours and hours and hours and hours to dedicate to training sometimes, which happens to all of us, the courseware can adjust and work with you to, to work with your schedule, to set learning goals and plans, which is really nice because you can still move the ball forward even when life gets a little crazy. They have a course scheduler that you can set a time frame. You pick it. They'll set learning goals for you and help you stick to it. That's really cool. And then also they have nuggets, which are like little sparkly bits of wisdom that you can do a deep dive into. Single topics, like you know, one challenge you're going to face on the job one day. Just go deep dive into that. And then you're done. It's really nice. You're always getting value because they're always updating courseware, adding new stuff linuxacademy.com slash coders. Go there, check them out. And they're also on Twitter, linuxacademy.com. 
on Twitter, talking about some of the new Docker and Puppet courseware that they've launched recently. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. Go there and sign up for a free seven-day trial. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring this here Coder Radio program. So it's time to talk about daydreaming. <laughs> That's how I read this. Um, Mr. Dominic, you proposed uh, a topic today that uh, I think is um, interesting. It's Is it time to go greenfield? Just go, go all green. Which, if I recall, Greenfield basically means, um, I guess the short version of it would be starting out a new project with no need to consider any of your prior work or projects. Well, when you put it like that. Um, are you familiar with absinthe at all? The alcohol, yes. Yes. Yeah. I think this is what put this in the dock, actually. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Green Fairy. It's a, Yeah, so I'm going Greenfield, buddy. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You mean you're going off into uh, some crazy new uh, Fangled Skunkworks project? Let's call it my super secret Kotlin thing. Oh, man. man. And it's Kotlin. How does it feel? I mean, does it feel does it feel really good? Does it just feel like well, it empowering? felt a lot better until you mentioned that whole daydreaming thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that's always what those of us who are working away on something for a long period of time start to do is we start to daydream about a whole new project that's nothing like anything we're doing right now. Uh, no, it's exactly like what I'm doing right now. Oh, really? Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So, hmm. it got me thinking about you know everybody says right. Well, what developer hasn't said you know. This is terrible. Insert problem you're facing here. We should just like rewrite this. Yeah. Right. We should just, you know, it's because we're using uh, Rails. We should rewrite it in Node. It's because we're using Node. We should rewrite it in Go. Right. Whatever. Yep. Right. Whatever yep. you're. Yep. Um, that's sometimes true. For instance, if the software has been in production for a decade, that might be right. But it's it's usually. The bad things in, in the system are there because the systems have to evolve over time, right, to meet new user needs. Right. Uh, and, you know, software isn't, and I'm going to apologize in advance to my Ruby hipsters with their gold MacBooks, uh, software is not meant to be, like, blogged about or podcasted about about how beautiful and revolutionary your architecture is. It's meant to actually, like, do things for people. Right. It's it's not. Yep. So in reality, in production, if your if your system's going to survive for years, it's going to become ugly. Or maybe not ugly. Maybe I would say it's not going to be perfectly factored. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If if it's actually living in the real production environment. Right. But there are opportunities and there are cases, like for instance, if you're building something brand new that you've never had before. That going greenfield makes sense. So with all of that sort of like stipulation on, yes, you know, it's Joel, Joel Spolsky's right. It's common that you shouldn't like rewrite entire systems unless they're super old or for obvious like technology reasons. Let's put that all aside and say, for whatever reason, you have made the decision. In fact, let's say a specific reason. It is a brand new system that you do not have. Hmm. So okay. it's a pure greenfield, right? So it's, let's just table the whole argument about when to do greenfield. Let's say you're already there. You're already driving the green ferry. Okay. It's actually challenging, I'm going to argue, and I'd be interested in feedback on this, to do a greenfield project. One, I haven't had the opportunity to do a pure greenfield project myself in a long time. Most things that get brought to me are brownfield these days, um, which – you know, people bitch and moan about. But the reality is a project that has legacy has a, has an odd advantage in that major decisions have already been made for you. You may not like those decisions, but they're made, right? Yeah. So yeah. You, you follow the leader. Uh, like not so long ago, I forklifted up a bunch of Rails 2 apps to Rails 5. That was problematic. But you know what? Like, gems not existing anymore and all that kind of crap aside, the basic architecture of most of those applications I kept the same because, it, it, you know, the mandate was upgrade us to the latest Rails and latest security packages uh, and replace any obsolete gems, not rewrite the entire thing to be in modern style, right? 
And there was something nice about, oh, so this is the pattern they're using to you know transmit data from one system to the other. It was a bunch of services that talked to each other. Okay, great. Let me just follow that pattern, right? But when you're starting from, you know, file new project in JetBrains, you have to make those decisions. Like basic things like Kotlin, Java, or Scala, right? And insert your, your language read platform here. Um, am I testing? Am I using automated testing at all? If I am, wow, there's hundreds of testing methodologies and libraries, right? Which one? Am I going functional? Am I going, oh, oh, is this a microservice? Is this a collection of services? Or is this like a monolith? All of these is, oh, and this is the one that's tripping me up today. What database actually makes the most sense for this project? Mm. Now, you could easily default to what you're used to, but I think it's worth examining, you know, a true Greenfield project, I think is a rare gem. A rare, especially if it's going to be a large project, right? And these little decisions you make right in the beginning are going to theoretically affect the next, you know, um, umpty years of your life, right? And years of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, do you have anything there? No, I agree with you completely. It's fact. It's sort of like almost would scare somebody off from starting. <laughs> it's <that's> so daunting. <laughs> you know, that's what I worry about. It sounds daunting, and then when you put it that way. Well, it is a little daunting, right? Like, the, you know, some of the things I'm struggling with right now are, you know, NoSQL kind of makes sense for what I'm thinking about, but I have a religious objection to NoSQL <laughs> because <laughs> it does scary things with not actually saving data and all kinds of crap that I've talked about at length on the show in past years. Um, but it's also gotten a lot more mature, right? Like MongoDB came out while we were doing the show, mm. and it was very scary, now it's actually kind of tame, right? It's it's a relatively conservative software to use. I mean, nothing is as conservative as Postgres, but, you know, it, and my bias is to just go with Postgres. But if your data is not really 100% relational, should you impose that structure on it? Sometimes these are just great experiments to, like, build something up for a bit, learn lessons from it, and then even... Oh, I spent, I, I spent the weekend just, like, screwing around with little Kotlin projects and seeing, like, okay, yeah. how is this different than, uh, you know, Java with some of the Lambda magic, right? Mm. And it's wildly different. It's somewhat like Swift, which is whoa challenging. Whoa, whoa. <clears throat> whoa. Although it's really not. But it's, it, it, it's superficially like Swift, I would say. Like, I visually, it looks like... I don't believe you either, young man. What, what <laughs> young a beautiful man. young boy that is. Uh, well, interesting. I hope I hope I hear more about this in the future. You're, well, hopefully by next week I have a database and a CI solution up, and I will talk about those. Mm-hmm. But, which, by the way, remember when there was like you installed Jenkins on a server and that was CI? Mm, yeah. <laughs> or, you, or, or now there's a million options. I remember when we had the uh, Dockyard guys on, or was it Dockyard? No, what's what's the uh, oh, code chip? Yes, code chip. good memory. Code chip, and uh, they they're they're huge now. Like there's all these different options, all these different methodologies, all these different automated systems you can use. Makes my old R sync scripts, you know, look a little uh, old fashioned. I guess I should say, good old R sync over say, SSH. <laughs> whatever happened to cron jobs? Right, right guys. <laughs> well, that's all the continuous integration you needed was the hourly cron hey, job. Listen, every day at five a.m., we just run their script and we see what happens. Hey, yeah. that's bad. Now, um, uh, should we leave people with um, a little sanity, something they can bring home to themselves and normalize their world? It's a project called Base Sixteen, an architecture, an architecture for building themes based on carefully chosen syntax highlighting. Using a base of 16 colors, Base 16 provides a set of guidelines detailing how to style syntax and how to code a builder um, using the Base 16 schemes and templates. So they give you a bunch of da- templates you can download. Uh, so that way, everybody is using the same damn highlighting scheme. And we will finally bring order to syntax highlighting. <laughs> and, and more importantly, if you're using, because uh, this guy Chris had a lot of the, uh, these schemes, like the one I use tomorrow night, 
are now like deprecated in newer versions of JetBrains. They don't quite highlight right. They didn't take into account languages oh. like Kotlin, newer things. Mm-hmm. Base16's versions of those uh, those themes is updated for most modern languages. You gotta appreciate so that. Issues, yeah. And if you're a whole team, you could just say, "Hey, everybody, let's do this. Let's just let's all just we'll be working." You know, off if that. you can impose a color color theme on your team, email me in and tell me how you did it. Yeah, because well. that sound. Can you impose an editor on them too? That seems really tough. An iron fist, my friend, an iron, iron fist. fist of them. Get I'm the sorry. hell out of here. Well, Mr. Dominic, is there anything else we want to cover before we get the hell out of here? No, uh, it has been a joyous time with you as always. Yes, I'm, uh, I, I knew I would enjoy the story of you boxing up your Dell. I was looking forward to that. Now, give some people some tips. Give them some pointers on where they can find you throughout the week. Follow me at Jumanuku on Twitter. I think there's going to be a little bit of MongoDB hate later. <laughs> oh, very good. What's there not to love? Follow me on Twitter at Chris LAS. Also, check out the new program, TechSnap, TechSnap.Systems. I mentioned that earlier for the Kubernetes breakdown. And you can find me over on LinuxActionNews.com, too. Boom! Two plugs! Yes! 300's just around the corner. We hope you're enjoying it. Maybe join us over at CoderRadio.Reddit.com to keep the show going throughout the week. And send us your feedback. We need some emails jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact for those bad man pajamas. <laughs> you can also join us live, jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for the live time. It's Mondays noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, if you just want to go to jblive.tv. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you right back here next Monday. Curmudgeon.